0: All right. Good morning, everyone. Grateful to have you here with me, with us this morning, as we gather together to work through the book of John. This book that we see behind me was written, That You May Believe, That You May Believe the Claims of Christ. So far, we've been working through, I believe it's the longest book or chapter in the book, Chapter 6, the bread of life discourse. And we're actually going to finish this um, discourse, this chapter today, just in time for Palm Sunday next Sunday, and then Easter the following Sunday. Today we're going to get into some really weird stuff. Jesus is going to say some things that's going to challenge you. It certainly challenged the people that were there at the time. But what we're going to take a look at is Christ's words and how words, the same words, can have a different impact on people. And I'm sure you've been in a scenario where you've said one thing and you meant something else, but someone took it as as something else. Um, Recently, I was on the news for Rob's um, business. Jesse's laughing because she knows. I was on the news for Rob's business at Sync, and they interviewed me. And uh, they asked me about how it's been with, with COVID, you know, having my own little space, getting out of an office space, having my own space. And at the very end of the, of the clip there, I said, um, we've seen a lot of people coming in here with COVID. That's what I said. We've seen a lot of people coming into this place with COVID. And what I meant is that because COVID has happened and people are losing their, their place to work and they're not going to work at home, they've been coming in here. What it sounded like is that people were coming in here with the disease to spread it to the rest of the town and the community. But that is not what I meant, right? Our words can be taken in ways we don't uh, even intend. And its you should check out the, the news clip. It's literally the last line I say, and then it cuts to different it sort of echoes in your head. What? People with COVID are coming in here. Today, we're going to see Jesus use words... And we're going to see, we're going to learn three things about Christ's words. Uh, To to some, Christ's words are hard words. They're difficult words. To other people, the words of Jesus are foolish and veiled, mysterious. They don't make sense. And then finally, we're going to see for those who believe, these hard veiled words to them are the words of eternal life. The same words have a different effect, depending on who is listening. So let's read John chapter 6, verse 48. We're going to go all the way to 71. we got a fairly big chunk to work through, and then we're going to jump in. This is what it says, starting in verse uh, 48. If you Just to catch you up to speed, this last week Jesus said, only those who come to me can, can take the bread of life, will have eternal life, and only those who are given by the Father to the Son will have eternal life. And he's coming off of that, that idea. Starting verse 48. Jesus says, "'I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever.'" and the bread that I will give him for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? That's kind of weird. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Okay, kind of weird. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense to this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? 7 Peter answered him, Lord, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. All right. So you see what I mean about these words of Jesus. You must eat my flesh, and drink my blood." That's what he says. That's what we're jumping into today. What does he mean here? Before we get there, just to establish the context, Jesus, starting in verse 48, is again leaning into this manna metaphor. Their ancestors, for the Jews, were um, lost in the wilderness, roaming around the wilderness, and God gave them manna from heaven to eat. And Jesus is saying, just like old manna came from heaven, so a new manna has come that you are to feed on. It's not for your physical health, but it's for your spiritual life. It's for spiritual eternity. And so Jesus is leaning into this old manna, new manna metaphor. He is a better manna. Their fathers ate in the wilderness before and they died. The food Didn't work as far as keeping them alive but Jesus the new manna has come into the world and he says in verse 51 and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh well what does that mean if you remember whenever Jesus was telling these people about the bread that he's given they wanted it verse 34 whenever and they've already experienced this right Jesus did this miracle the fishes and the loaves they got their fill And now Jesus is saying they can be eternally satisfied forever, and they're on that physical plane. Jesus is on the spiritual plane, and in verse 34, they say, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus says, all right, you need to eat on my flesh. It's weird. What do you mean eat on my flesh? What are you getting at? And I gotta imagine, I don't think these people really think Jesus is calling them to be cannibals, right? But I got to imagine that whenever Jesus says to them, you need to eat my flesh, the bread that's come down from heaven is my flesh, you need to eat it, that they're thinking, maybe I heard him wrong. Maybe, maybe maybe I I don't even know how you would try to, you know, um, think that through. You know, maybe I heard him wrong, but no, you didn't hear him wrong. Because after Jesus says, you need to eat of my, my flesh, and they start grumbling, then Jesus doubles down. And he says, do not grumble amongst yourself. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm off there. Uh, he says to them in verse 52, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He doubles down on what he's saying. In fact, not only do you have to eat my flesh, you also have to drink my blood. And he repeats this strange phrase six times. The the next few verses here, 52 through 58, he just says the same thing over again. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. What is he talking about here? Does Jesus really want us to eat him? What is the point That he is getting at. And that brings us to our first point of the message today. The words of Jesus are hard words. Not all the words of Jesus are hard words, but some of the words of Jesus are hard words. And he often speaks these words in such a way as not to qualify them, but to put people in a situation where they're either going to lean in to the words or be repelled by the words. So these people hear Jesus talking about eating him, and they say in verse 60, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Let's first clear the air. What does Jesus mean? Whenever Jesus says, eat my flesh, drink my blood, what does he actually mean? Well, this is what he means. He wants us to believe in the crucifixion. He wants us to believe in the cross. He's pointing us to the cross. That's where his flesh was pierced for us, and that's where his blood was shed for us. He does not mean, obviously, that we need to eat him. We could not eat him, and if you think about the whole world... Not enough flesh and blood to go around, right? If we're like thinking about it literally. Not enough flesh and blood. I know it's disgusting, but we're just, you get what I'm saying. I don't think they thought that they that he wanted them to eat him either. I think they were just super confused about what was going on. But what Jesus is doing is he's pointing them to the cross. My body and my blood is going to be shed For you. Beaten and bloodied for you. And whenever you see that, you need to eat it and drink it. You need to believe in it. And so that's what we do. That's what we do as followers of Christ. We believe in the crucifixion. We believe that the blood of Christ covers us. And in fact, we do eat of the body and blood of Jesus. It's called communion, right? It's called this thing that we've started back doing. We're eating the body and the blood of Christ, and I know it sounds kind of weird to to say it this way, but that's a very intimate thing, right? Whenever we talk about eating, it's like we're taking it in as our own. We are partaking in the body and the blood of Jesus. It's it's a belief, yes, but it's a a part of us. If you think about it in in that way, this is what it says, uh, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 26. This is sort of the The wording that we get, that Paul gives us um, that he heard from Christ. This is what it says, 11 verse 26. Uh, Well, I'll just start in verse 24. Jesus said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so they ate. Verse 25, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And they take. And then verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread, And drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and so whenever we are eating the bread of Jesus the bread of of the communion we are saying Jesus I believe that you have offered your body on the cross for my sins and whenever we drink the juice we're saying Jesus I believe that an entrusting in the blood that you shed on the cross to atone and cover for my sins So communion is not just a time. Whenever I was little, I was like, yes, we get to eat during church, right? That's not it. And in fact, I mean, that's hardly a meal at all, right? Anyways, you'd have to eat like the whole thing, the whole box, and still you wouldn't be full. But that's not what it is. It's a symbol that we so associate and believe in the cross that we are partaking it. We are appropriating it into ourselves, And there's a lot of history of this. Um, I believe the Catholic Church believes it actually turns into, it's called transubstantiation. it actually turns into the blood and the body of Christ. I don't think that's the case. I don't believe that's the case. Um, Lutherans have have a different view of communion, that the body and the blood, it turns into it, but not literally, it's sort of around it. It's hard to explain. We take it symbolically, but it's a, it's a close association. This is, and if you think about it, beyond that, that should have been our body and blood, right? In God's judgment of sin, Jesus takes the place of sinners. So in a very real sense, that is supposed to be our body and blood on the cross, but it's Jesus's. And so we kind of claim that as our own. So God, whenever he looks at me, he's not seeing my body and blood, my judgment. He's seeing the judgment of Christ before me that, that's covering me, that's, that's you know, shielding me from his, from his judgment. That's what the, you know, penal substitution, substitutionary atonement is. And so that's what Jesus is getting at. I know I'm just kind of jumping into this, you know, deep theological discussion here, but he puts it in such a strange way. Eat my body drink my blood, believe the cross, but why does he say it that way? He never talks about the cross. He never mentions sacrifice. He he never mentions any of this stuff. He just says, eat my body, drink my blood. How could he possibly expect them to understand what he was getting at? That's an honest, I think anyone would, would honestly ask that question. Like, why do you say it that way? If you're trying to convince people, that's like the last thing you're going to say. You're just going to gross them out. What is he doing? Why does he go about it this way? He's, he, he is using this metaphor in such a graphic way to point them to the cross, and yet, at the end of it, they just can't stomach it. They can't stomach the thought. I don't. Again, I don't think that they think he really means to eat them, but I think they're just totally bewildered, totally offended, totally sick with the graphic imagery, and they just can't stomach the words of Christ. Now, that's the truth today as well. Jesus says a lot of hard words that we can't stomach, or society can't stomach. This is one of those words, but today there are many things that Jesus says that people can't stomach. Matthew 10 verse 28, do not fear, this is Jesus, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Don't like that. We don't like hell. That's what Jesus said. Jesus teaches the doctrine of hell, eternal judgment. Matthew ten thirty seven. another hard word we can't stomach. Whoever loves, this is just a few verses later, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to believe in me, I have to be your top priority. You can't love your spouse more than me. You can't love your kids more than me. I say, God, I really love Ellie. Like, I love her a lot. I lo- really love Levi. I really love Abram. I really love my wife. Like, I gotta love you more than them? And if I don't, I'm not worthy of you? That's kind of tough. Matthew 8, 22. This is Jesus talking to a man whose father was about to die or had already died. Jesus says to the man whose father just died, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead." That's just insensitive, right? The guy's, the guy's dad just died, and you're saying, you know, you can't go to the funeral. You got to follow me. Let the dead bury their own. Wow, Jesus, that that kind of hits hard. It doesn't feel right. Jesus says a lot of things, if we're honest, if we get past sort of the the cliche Instagram Bible quotes. That are hard. They're hard words. There's a lot of hard words in the Bible. And there's meaning behind everything we've just looked at. And what we're with in John 6 here. There's meaning there. We're not going to get into it. You can ask me about it after after class. (laughs) After the service if you want to. But the point is this. And this is why I think Jesus says, says it this way. When you hear this hard word. Will you stop your ears, close your eyes, and say, I'm done. No, thank you. I'm not interested in this Jesus guy. I thought it was supposed to be about kindness, love, peace, all that good stuff. He's telling a guy who's, who's in you know total bereavement to leave his dad and not even go to the funeral. Right? That doesn't make any sense to me. Okay? Whenever you hear these words, are you going to react in that way? And sort of fall away are you gonna lean in and say okay this is tough but what does it mean what's going on here how do I process this the temptation of our hearts is to be pushed away by the hard words of Christ that's the temptation and it's not because the words are hard the words have to be hard to pierce our hard hearts it's our the, the condition of our hearts right it, I think about it like a game of of pool The cue ball is hard. The billards are hard. All the balls are hard. And the words of Jesus are like that cue ball that are careening towards our hearts, right? And once that cue ball hits us, we're just going to ricochet off and run away. We're going to ricochet off of that and run away. We're pushed away by these words. And so what people can do, because they don't want to push people away, they want to soften the words. Okay, maybe not a cue ball, Christ's words symbolically, maybe a tennis ball, right? Maybe one of those sponge balls that you play with in a pool that you fill up with water and throw, right? That won't nearly hurt as much whenever it comes against our hearts. We try to soften the words. So whenever Scripture talks about these really hard things like God's judgment and our sin and and the graphic representation of Jesus's crucifixion. We just want to mute those colors so they don't stand out. We want to soften those hard edges. And what I'm saying is we can't do that. We don't dare do that. Because soft words are not going to penetrate a hard heart. They're going to bounce off. Soft words are not going to get down deep to where it needs to get to to change our souls. It's not going to work. They have to be hard. Why do you think it's so graphic Jesus died? Because our sin is so terrible. That's why. Our sin, why do you think in the Old Testament they had to shed all this blood, all these lambs, all these goats, because their sin, their offense to God was so great. This is a graphic representation of what it looks like for sinful people to be in a relationship with the Holy God, how God has to deal with that sin ultimately expressed with Jesus on the cross. That should cut to our hearts. And should show us at what great length God has gone to, to reconcile us to himself. I think about the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts chapter 2. He has He's preaching at Pentecost. This is the first sermon of the church. The church has just started. And he is preaching a message, the first gospel Christ message. And he has some very hard words. This is what he says... In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, for the people there, says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, so as, as you yourselves know. Uh, verse 23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This Jesus, God in the flesh, you crucified and you killed him. No sugar coating, no softening the edges. You killed God. You did it. You killed him. By your hands. It's a really hard word, right? It's a really hard word. And whenever you extrapolate that out in the whole theological scheme that Jesus died for our sins, and you think, okay, I've got a part in that that Jesus died for my sins in my place you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men what is their response to this hard word verse 37 now when they heard this they were cut to the heart other places says they were pierced to their hearts and said to peter and the rest of the apostles brothers what shall we do To be saved, what shall we do to be saved? The hard words worked, they pierced the hard heart. Now, Jesus has a lot of soft words a lot of soft words, beautifully soft words. Come to me, all who weary and are heavy laden. Take your yoke upon me, learn from me, find rest for your soul. Right? Beautifully soft words, but we can't leave out the hard words. Because that's where the work really happens. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. And he talks about the hard words of God being like a sculptor with a block of granite, right? And every single word that comes against the granite chips it off. But he's making it into something beautiful whenever he's said and done. And that's why we have to lean in to the hard words. Because that's where God is going to do The work. Whenever these people heard these hard words, and yes, confusing as well, they were repelled by it. They didn't lean into it. They were turned off and turned away because they weren't getting from Jesus what they thought that they should be getting. He wasn't giving them what they wanted, and so they turned away. And we're going to see that here in a little bit. So what we see is to some the words of Jesus are very, very difficult. They're very, very hard. What we're going to see next is that these words weren't only hard. They were also veiled. They're also mysterious. And because of that, also foolish. Starting in verse 61, the second half going to verse 64. says this, Jesus talking about their grumbling. Do you take offense at this, at these words that I've said? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus has mentioned that he is the bread that has come down from heaven. He has descended from heaven, come down, to earth. In this part, he's referencing his ascension. He's saying, look, if you don't believe I've descended, you're not going to believe if I were to go back, if I were to ascend back to heaven. And here, again, veiled, but here he's talking about, one, firstly, his his ascension, right? He goes back to heaven with God, but he's also here talking about the cross as well, right? Whenever Jesus was crucified, he ascended to the cross. And whenever we think about ascension in the Bible or being lifted up, we think about exaltation. That Jesus was lifted up above all of his enemies, above all people. And it's a moment of utter irony that a moment of shame and humiliation and nakedness and death and destruction for Jesus, which is not a moment of glory, God turns into a moment of glory. Because it is in that moment that Christ dies that he defeats death, right? It is in that moment that he dies at the hands of sinful men that he defeats sin. It's in that moment that it seems like Satan won, right? That Satan is actually defeated. And so he's lifted up in humiliation to the world, but to God he's lifted up in glory. And Jesus saying, even if this were to happen, you're still not going to believe. You're not going to believe the cross. You're not going to believe if I were to sin before your very eyes and go back to the right hand of the throne of God. You're not going to believe the first nor the second ascension. And you're not going to believe for this reason. Because you're approaching God by means of the flesh. He says it again, verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The flesh is no help at all. Jesus here, and this is such an important, this is such a backwards thinking from how we naturally approach God. We are utterly incapable of coming to God by means of our own wills, by means of our own intellects, our own emotions. We can't just figure God out by means of our own works, by means of our own actions. We can't ascend the hill. God's at the top. We can't get there on our own. Jesus says, the flesh is no help at all. These words I'm telling you that feel weird, and you're just trying to parse them out and think, you know, how does this work? You're not going to get there just purely by your mind. You need the Spirit of God to open up your eyes to these things. This entire time, these people have sought to understand and relate to Jesus purely by means of the physical world, by the flesh. They want to use him to get earthly food. Jesus says, I have come to give you eternal life, heavenly food. They want earthly food. They wanted to make him their earthly king. They wanted salvation from the Romans. Jesus came to be the king of the entire creation, the entire created order, the king of all eternity, capital K, king. They wanted him just to rule over them and save them from the Romans. And then finally, they wanted to use him for earthly benefits, but Jesus came to secure for them a heavenly destiny, eternal glory. Christ came to give them all these things, but they just weren't speaking the same language. They weren't on the same wavelength. And what we see is that the words of Jesus were veiled. They just couldn't understand them. They couldn't wrap their head around this man. And they couldn't understand it because they didn't have the Spirit of God to lift the veil. This is what it says, this is what Paul says in First Corinthians 2.14. And this is very, very important as far as us interacting with this world. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is the perfect example of that. Jesus says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. They don't understand it, and they think he's crazy. Again, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is known as the doctrine of illumination. The doctrine of illumination. And what this means is that God has to open up our minds and our hearts to believe and to understand His Word. Apart from God doing it, it's just kind of words on a page. We can memorize Scripture all we want to, but for it to get from here down to here, it has to be a spiritual awakening. God has to do it. That's why I pray. I mean, before we, you know, we just gathered at 930, we always pray. I'm always praying, God, you got to come and do this. Because we can. I could spend 30 hours on my sermon, 40 hours during the week. We could have all the things in the world. If God does not come and work within those things, it's not going to happen. If he doesn't come and open up your, your ears to hear these things in your heart, it's not going to happen. That could be Billy Graham. It doesn't matter. God has to do it. These are spiritually discerned things. That doesn't mean we're robots. We're called to commune with God, but we're communing with him believing he's going to meet us there. These are spiritually discerned. The natural man does not accept these things. Let me give it. Let me give you an example. And this has to do with salvation eternal life. If you talk to most people and you ask them, how does someone get into heaven? How are we gonna get there? I think most people believe in heaven and hell. Most people believe they're probably gonna to go to heaven I've never met anyone that says they're going to hell, right? Everyone's going to heaven. Okay, the question, how are you going to get there? The natural man would say, you get out what you put in. To use biblical language, you reap what you sow, okay? So if I'm going to get to heaven, I'm going to get there by doing good works, by being a good person, by my good works outweighing my bad works. And so whenever... I get to God, and the scale is like this, my favor. God says, all right, you're 51% good, 49% bad. You make the cut. Jump on in to heaven. Some people call it karma, although I'm not really sure if that's true to, you know, what Hindus believe, but some people call it karma. You get what you get based on what you do. If I'm a bad person, then I'll go to hell, and there's only like two people in hell, Hitler and some other bad guy, all right? That's the natural view. That's what most people sort of assume. This is the exact opposite of what the Bible says. The Bible says, for by grace you have been saved. Through faith. It is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The natural man does not think that way. That salvation is purely a gift from God. No works on my part. I am totally incapable of making my way to heaven by my own power, by my own strength. It is a gift from God. And God does it specifically so that we can't boast in our works. That's the crazy thing about it. God, the way God, that's what it says. For by grace you been saved through faith, it is not your undoing, doing. It is a gift of God, not a, work, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God specifically saves us in such a way as to strip us of any boasting or pride in ourselves. That is not naturally discerned. That is a spiritual thing. God has to convince you by a spirit. No one's just going to think that naturally. God has to show you that. The Bible says it is not by works of the flesh. Isaiah 64, verse 6. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment before the Lord. The Lord, filthy rags. I don't know if you've ever tried cleaning up a mess with a filthy rag; you just make it worse. Whenever I was in um, high school, they had always those, those cheap, um, to, you know, paper rolls, and you'd spill your milk, and you get the paper, you know, the cheap paper. You try to clean up the mess, and all you do is spreading it around because it's not soaking up the chocolate milk right, and then you you have more chocolate milk on the table than. You started with somehow, right? That's what it's like with our filthy (laughs) our righteous deeds. It's a filthy rag trying to clean up a filthy mess. You just spread it around. That's what Scripture says. We're not making our situation better. So if I bring this message to someone of what the Bible actually says, how you get to heaven, totally free, you can't do anything, you're far worse off than you even realize, they're going to think I'm crazy. They're going to think I'm foolish if 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 they're not discerning it with the spirit of God. If they're discerning it with their natural mind, they're going to think I'm foolish, and that's exactly what it says in First First Corinthians chapter two: the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. If you read earlier in the chapter, God calls God says that He was pleased to preach the gospel through the the folly of preaching, to use the church to spread his message through the folly of preaching, the folly of the cross, because it just doesn't make sense. And what I'm saying is that Jesus here is showing us that same paradigm. The crazy thing about this doctrine of illumination and these veiled words is you can be in church your entire life. You can memorize scripture and still be totally oblivious and totally blind to who God is. Only God can reveal these things to us. Only He can reveal to us the depth of our sin, and then, connected to that, reveal the greater depths of His love, the greater depths of His grace, the greater depths of His mercy. Only He can open up our minds to see, and to love, and to follow Christ. These are hard words. These are big things. They're not easy things. They are veiled things to some. These people... They heard these words, these veiled words, these strange words, these hard words that Jesus did not qualify, that Jesus did not soften. He just spoke to them. And what was the result? It says this in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned away. They turned back and no longer walked with him. They left him they left him they didn't like what he was saying so they left him i think that this is such an important example from christ to put the message out there and and be as winsome as we can be and loving as we can be and and all that but not pull back any punches if the if the word punches not Do anything other than what God has called us to do and let what happens happens we're not the one who saves folks we are the ones who speak the word and we depend on God to make the hard words work and make the veiled words make sense now we want to be culturally contextual we want to speak in ways that are intelligible but we need to trust that God's gonna do the work in folks for this crowd here, they heard the words, and they didn't like it, and they left. And if you think about Jesus's ministry beyond this for the three years, Jesus was alone whenever he was tried by the Jews. He was alone. By the end of his three years, after many miracles and healings, speaking the very very word of God, his church was about a hundred people. The Son of God, the the crowd that he gathered was a hundred people, okay? A hundred people. And it was this hundred people that God used to start the age of the church. Today, we have many large churches. We have many large gatherings. But with this large gathering, we can see, and I've seen, whenever the hard words come, a lot of those people leave because they're not their words. They're not the words that they want. And so they walk away. And they walk away because they don't believe at the end of the day that Jesus has the words of eternal life. And that leads us to our last point. For some, the words are hard. For some, the words are veiled. But for others, the words are the words of eternal life. This is what it says. After these disciples leave, Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And this is like one of the, few times that Simon Peter gets it right. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is incredible. Peter heard the same words. He saw the same miracle. He experienced the same thing as these guys. He was there. The hard words, the veiled words, were to him eternal life words. Nothing was different. It was all the same. But he heard the words of eternal life. Why were they words of eternal life to him and not to the other folks? What was the difference? I think this is the difference. It says here again. You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He believed the source of the words. He believed that Christ was the Holy One of God. He believed that Jesus was the Savior, and so he believed the words. The people here did not believe that. They did not believe the source, so they did not believe the words. And so they went away. They went their own way. And so, as is always the case, as we meditate on God's Word together this morning, it always comes back to this. As, as I'm preaching through John, it always comes back to this. Who is this man? And will you believe his words or not? If he is the Savior of the world, then you got to believe the words. you got to hold on to the words. you got to fight and wrestle with the words, but then you have to accept the words. If he's not, if he's some madman, then you'll go away. What are these words to you? Are they hard words? Are they veiled words? Are they foolish words? Do they come at you and do you ricochet off these words like a game of pool? Or do they penetrate your hearts? Are they starting to make sense in ways that you never realized before, Are you leaning into these words? Do they taste to you like the words of eternal life? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you this morning spending time in your word, looking at these hard words, these confusing words, these veiled words. Lord, to me, these are the words of eternal life. And I know that it is by your pure grace and love and mercy that you have made them make sense to me. That is a gift. I haven't done anything to make them make sense. You have come and you have done that. And so I'm praying that same reality for those of us here and those of us joining online. As we come to these hard words, as we come to these strange words, as we come to these seemingly foolish words, That you, in your spirit, by your spirit, in us, make them make sense. These are spiritually discerned, spiritually heard, spiritually believed. We need to do that, Lord. I want to pray, Lord, for the hard words. These are good words, Lord. We thank you for the soft words, Lord. And and we lean on those soft words, Lord. But we also know that you're doing a good work with the hard ones, too. And so wherever the hard ones come to us, let them do their work on our hearts. Whenever the hard ones come to us, Lord, do the work that you are requiring them to do, that you have sent them down to do. That's what you say. Your word does not return to you void and empty, but accomplishes the purpose for which you have sent it, Lord. Accomplish the purpose in us, in your church. Make it so as we respond in faith and lean into these words, Lord. Let the hard words do their work. For the veiled words, the things that don't make sense, the things we're struggling with, Lord, help us open up our minds and our hearts to receive and to understand in such a way that we are walking in the truth of those words. Because your words are to us words of eternal life. And so for those that do not believe, Lord, we pray that they would taste and see that you are good. These same words, Lord, that they would believe that Jesus is the Holy One of God. We have Easter coming up, Lord. We pray that people would come into this place and hear the words and not be turned away like the people here in Capernaum, Lord. But draw near. Have the response of Peter. Lord, you have the words of eternal life because we have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. We pray that for this community. We pray that for this town. We pray for us that we would... We believe that, Lord, but there's a lot of days we don't believe that. I mean, we do, but for being honest we don't lord convince us remind us shape us mold us lord we pray that you would do this work we love you lord we thank you for this time that we can come to you pray that you bless our day as well we uh, pray these things in the name of christ amen